Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. Oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, thank you for joining my brother KJ and I for what is going to be a fantastic show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, all of which are available, volumes one through eight, at Amazon in paperback and ebook. And six of the volumes are available at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. So take advantage of that. And don't forget, folks, I have this three-series, three-book series called The Exorcists, Truth and Lies, Diabolica, and Full Moon. So if you're into a little bit of exorcism, check them out. They're all in paperback and ebook, and Diabolica is in audible format as well. And now let me bring my brother into this circus. Kevin, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. How about you, Bill? Excellent. You know, I want to break the ice today with uh, a couple of shout outs. Uh, one to Emily from the Forest Fleur. Uh, Emily sent me out a couple of nice little gifts, Bigfoot related, after doing a little interview with her on her podcast. Very nice. Maybe a little uh, footprint casting. <laughs> Not quite. She ha I think she actually makes a lot of the stuff that she uh, sells. These were actually like slices of uh, wood, including the bark, uh -huh. uh, nicely finished and varnished with like a uh, stencil of Bigfoot on them. Awesome. Yeah. So and one of them has a string through it. And I said, that's going on my Christmas tree. This I was uh, going to say, a little tree ornament for sure. Definitely, definitely. And she sent me a few different things, Kev, so I'm going to send a couple over to you. All right. Well, thank you, Emily. Emily. I don't get an autographed book, but I got something from <laughs> Emily via you. <laughs> and here's, here's the uh, second thing, Kev. So right. I don't know if you recall uh, last week or the week before, we got an email from uh, Becca. Do you remember that? Oh, I do remember Becca. Okay, so Becca, a.k.a. Rebecca, uh, I contacted her, asked her to call me, because I like to hear things firsthand. And uh, in this case, uh, Rebecca, we played a little telephone tag. She got back to me. And a couple of interesting things I'd like to note. Uh, first of all, uh, Rebecca is in law enforcement. And, uh, yeah, in Colorado, as I recall, right? What's that? In Colorado, as I recall. I believe it was Colorado. Yeah. And she had made a uh, an arrest on uh, an individual who had a warrant. And uh, during the uh, ride uh, over to the clink, uh, she gets in a conversation with this woman. Now, here's the point I'm, uh, I'm getting at. So we have a person who obviously did something wrong and... Uh, and uh, allegedly, allegedly, not convicted yet. Right, right. right. But she's, <laughs> she's got the chrome on and she's going for a ride. Exactly. Now, the interesting thing here is uh, a point that I've made myself that... Individuals are well able to discern uh, whether or not somebody is being truthful with them. And I rely on that all the time. Oh, me too. So, me too. So here is Rebecca uh, doing a job, bringing somebody to justice. And the woman strikes up this conversation about having been scared off a, a creek or a river where her and her uh, boyfriend or husband 
got scared off by that Bigfoot that we spoke about. And, you know, it was interesting that Rebecca said, I didn't get the sense that she was lying to me. Right. And I said to Rebecca, you know, it's a heck of a story to start, uh, a heck of a yarn to start spinning in the back of a squad car when you're getting taken in. Right. And I agreed with her, but it didn't end there. It turns out that Rebecca was, in fact, a therapist, uh, I guess, prior to uh, being in law enforcement. And she made the comment, which is exactly what I have said, and it is this. She was really impressed with the Patterson-Gimlin film. And, you know, when we talk about how people get into Bigfoot and why they believe and et cetera, et cetera. And she made the point of how perfectly the musculature, which had to be attached to the dermis, which is your skin layer, moved with every movement of the patty creature. And I told her, which I think I've mentioned before, but it's worth mentioning again, that in my second trimester of uh, kinesiology, which is the study of muscles and movement in the body, as part of our final grade, we had to get up before the class, and the doctor asked us all uh, to describe a movement in detail. And by that, I mean he wanted to know what muscles were moving when, where, and how to do what it is you were going to show the class. And did you squatch across the room? <laughs> I actually did not. Because that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> kind of looking over your right shoulder. I think that would have taken more time than he was allowing. Oh, okay. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> movements going on there, bro. But my, <laughs> mine was stepping up one step. In other words, what's required to lift one leg up onto the step and then to bring the other one up behind it so you're standing on step number one. All right. But Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, pick whoever you want, in their best days, if they put a, a, an ape suit on, their muscles would not have been punching out the way they were on that creature in that footage. Those muscles were enormous, and not only were they enormous, they had to be attached anatomically to the skin for them to do what it is they do in that footage. Arnold just texted me, and he said, I don't quite agree, but I understand <laughs> your point. I pick things up and I put things down. I will be back. <laughs> I love that stuff. But so <laughs> here we have two people, myself and Sarah, uh, Sarah, Rebecca. I'm thinking of Sarah Connor now from. Uh... <laughs> Hello, it's Sarah Connor here. <laughs> Give me your clothes. <laughs> uh, but the two of us having a little knowledge about the body and its musculature are both making the same statement, which is it had to be alive just by the way it moved. So that's incredible to me, you know, Kev? Super cool. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's why I love the listeners. I love to talk to well, them. And I love the fact that Becca went from being a therapist to uh, strapping on a 9mm Glock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do love that. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So there you have it. Well, Kev, I figured I'd uh, come out of the gate with that, and uh, let me throw it back to you now. We, I'm sure you got something lined up for our cryptids in the news and other oddities. Yeah, segment. we got a little creep fest today, Bill. I know you'll be disappointed with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never be disappointed with a creep fest. We're going back tonight to Portlock, Alaska. Oh. Uh, you know, we touched on it when I was uh, last summer, about a year ago, when I came back from Alaska, and I talked a little bit about the Portlock, Alaska mystery, but we didn't really do a, a full section of cryptids in the news. And I came across a pretty cool article from uh, the Homer newspaper from Homer, Alaska, 
And uh, it talks a lot about, it's an interview uh, with a woman who grew up in Fort Chatham, otherwise known as Portlock, Alaska. And she talks about her experience there. So I figured, let's, let's talk about it again. It's pretty cool. Yeah, awesome. And uh, you want to do a little uh, uh, a backdrop, or will you do oh, that? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So Portlock, uh, I mean, you remember, Bill, this is that town that was like a cannery town, and uh, people would show up dismembered, wash up on the beach, and people were like scared to death, and and in mass, the whole town basically moved away uh, in the late 1940s. You recall that one? I do, and also I recall that, if I'm not mistaken, one of the initial killings, or what appeared to be a murder... Uh, in that place was committed by what they said was a gigantic piece of like iron equipment. Yeah, timber, timber equipment. Smashing somebody, which couldn't have been humanly done. Yeah, couldn't be picked up by anyone and smashed a guy over the head and killed him. Yeah, it was like something like a freaking snowplow off a truck or something, right? Yeah, it, was, it was logging equipment. Yeah. So the stuff I read, several accounts, they didn't actually say what it was, but I would imagine it was something like a hydraulic log splitter, you know, something that you can't pick up. Right, something massive and iron. With. Yeah. Exactly. Go ahead, man. I didn't mean to interrupt yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's cool. So, so this little town, first off, let's figure out where we are. So this is on the Kenai Peninsula, uh, which is south of Anchorage. So, you know, like if you were going into the Kenai Peninsula tomorrow, if you were lucky enough, I spent uh, two and a half weeks there last summer, and it was phenomenal. Uh, but you, you basically would fly into Anchorage. Uh, and then uh, either drive a car or take a float plane or uh, even the Alaska Railroad take you halfway down there, uh, head south on the Kenai Peninsula. And the, at, when you head out towards the end of Kenai, Kenai Peninsula, there's two peninsulas that stick out kind of like two fingers next to one another. Okay. The most famous one ha- or the most famous city is on the westernmost peninsula, and it's called Homer, like Homer Simpson. Okay. (laughs) And uh, Homer, Alaska is a really pretty um, touristy town that's on a long strand of beach that reaches out into the sea. And I was there last summer, spent a couple of nights on the tip of the Homer Peninsula, or what they call the Homer Spit, uh, and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then if you go a little bit further west, there's a much more rural peninsula that's really hard to get to. Like, I don't think there's a highway that goes down there. I think you need like ATV or by boat or by plane. Um, there's a city called Port Graham. And it also used to be called Portlock, Alaska. Okay, and so. city is a generous definition. You know, it's a pretty rural place. But there was a cannery there historically over time, cannery and uh, lumber business. So if you think about it, Kev, back when somebody or some bodies must have discovered some excellent fishing and convinced uh, other people, either one by one or by a group, that there was good money to be made if we go there and invest the time and put the effort in uh, in uh, salmon canning or whatever else it was they were canning over there. Yeah, no doubt about it. And the city uh, was kind of claimed and discovered by a British ship captain. His name was Captain Nathaniel Portlock, and he sailed in there, believe it or not, in 1786. Wow. Yeah. And in 1921, a U.S. post office opened there. Wow. So, and this is a really rural place. You know, for folks out there listening, if you haven't been to Alaska, it is, I mean, even, you know, the mainstay places are pretty darn rural. Like, you know, it shocked me when I was up there this past summer. We were going to go over to Juneau, which is the capital of Alaska. And you can't get to Juneau unless you fly there on a, a float plane or you go there by boat. And it's the capital. It's unbelievable. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it's Alaska. You know, it's 
It's it's unlike anything you could imagine until you go there. Yeah, and then of course, even if you go out just outside of any of these quote major cities, you're back in the sticks again. Oh, they're all sticks. I mean, Anchorage, believe me, was uh, a little frightening. Like we spent a couple of nights there just because I thought there'd be things to see there. And I apologize to the folks in Anchorage. But, you know, there's not a lot to see in Anchorage. And it's a little bit, you know, I mean, there's hotels there and stuff, you know, Hampton Inns and Best Westerns, stuff like that. It's not a big city at all, even though it's the biggest city in Alaska. I think it has 250,000 people or something like that. So pretty small Mm -hmm. for the biggest city in the state. But it's a little bit like the Wild West. I mean, did you, you know. see, did you see anybody walking down the street with a hockey mask on and a big knife? <laughs> we actually saw some <laughs> fist fights on the street at like six o'clock in in the evening. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit like you know what the Wild West was like, I would imagine. And still, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, the the last frontier, right? Yeah, well, that's what they say: um, Alaska, the last frontier. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So, so this town is pretty, pretty uh, rural place. Been around f- for a while, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to this story that was in the Homer Tribune, uh, going back a few years now. But they interviewed this woman. Uh, oh well, it's by Naomi Cloda, and I apologize if I mispronounce your name. There's some tough names in this one, and they interviewed a woman by the name of Melania Trump. No, not really. (laughs) Melania Keel, her name is, K-E-H-L. And she was the eldest resident in Nanwalek. And she knows many of the traditional stories. So she's kind of like, you know, been around forever. And her birth village was Port Chatham, or otherwise known as Portlock, Alaska. Wow. So she's almost like the village historian, right? Exactly, exactly. Awesome. So uh, um, she she tells a story about how the village, uh, Port Chatham, became deserted and uh, why the abandoned town continued to be shunned uh, and why those who once lived there, like her, will never return. Wow. So it's pretty cool, yeah. So she was born in 1934, in Port Chatham, so that's her birthplace, as I mentioned. Uh, then a small village, they say, founded at the edge of a peaceful moorage. So the ships would come in there and anchor, right? Mm-hmm. And when she was a baby, the family abruptly moved away from Chatham. So even though they uh, you know, were very happy there, they built a house there, they abruptly left. And she says they left the house and every board of its frame Behind. Wow. Yeah. So just kind of left in the in the middle of the night. Yeah. Well, that's fear. That's true fear. Yeah. You know, well, you're, she, you're not thinking about anything else other than saving your life and saving it now. Yep. And they they asked her, you know, was this a single event? I think this is super interesting too. Uh, Was this a single event that frightened your parents away? And she says, no, it's not a single event. It happened over a, quote unquote, long period of time. Hmm. And she says a Nantanuck or big hairy creature was reportedly terrorizing villages. Wow. A Nantanuck? Nantanuck. So that is, uh, you know, the First Nations people up there. Uh uh, that's what they call the big hairy creature. Sounds a lot like Sasquatch, right? Uh, no doubt about it. Yeah, but it goes back before the term Sasquatch or definitely Bigfoot ever existed. Right, right. Well, I think the term Sasquatch was derived uh, uh, from that fellow, uh, the cryptozoologist. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Yep. Uh, yep. He, in some of his interviews with some uh, uh, native peoples, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, he had dug up the term Sasquatch. Exactly, exactly. From like Washington, British Columbia, but this is further up, different right. folks. They called it Nantanuck. Wow. Yeah. So this is pretty interesting. So that, you know, a lot of these encounters with the big hairy creature terrorizing the villagers, and this is a key theme of this 
hairy man set of encounters is, you know, a lot of the encounters we talk about, Bill, even though we joke about them sometimes, they're, they're, they're not violent. You know, they're very passive. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. looking behind a tree, swaying back and forth on its feet, you know, and watching, maybe laying down on the ground and watching. But these sightings up here of Nantanok, they are violent. This is an aggressive creature. And, you know, when we talk a little bit about the uh, the bodies in that, they're tearing these victims' bodies limb from limb. Yeah, which brings credence to the deers found with limbs torn yes. off of them. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know what kind of power it would take, Kev, to tear a human leg off? Yeah. I mean, just incredible force just to yep. pull it off. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, you're good. You're yeah. good. So I do want to mention, there's not much of the story here, but Melania also talks about the spirit of a woman in draping black clothes that would come out of the cliffs and down into the village. And she said she had a very white face and a long dress that would go beyond her feet. So she would drag it. And uh, she would disappear into the black cliffs. Wow. And it, was this <laughs> going on in conjunction with the in attacks? In conjunction, yes. My God. Different creature, though. Clearly different. Yeah. But you know, the- you have the uh, Nantanuk, known known a lot by the, the native people, and then also this uh, woman draped in black clothes that would come out of the cliffs. Did she say anything about a number of creatures, or was it always like centered around a particular creature? Great question. So central to all of these sightings is a soul creature sighting. So it's kind of like, you know, some of the discussion around it when you read about it is, is this like one super aggressive creature that, you know, maybe... He's out on this peninsula, which, you know, peninsula is a little bit like an island, right? It's pretty isolated out there, surrounded by cliffs. Maybe he's angry. You know, he's going a little insane because he's by himself. No other creatures around. And then, like, basically killing everything in sight. Maybe he's killing everything in sight because he's hungry. You know, because there's not much other food out there on this uh, virtual island. Yeah, and this just furthers my point that if you meet up with a Sasquatch and walk away, you had a really good day. (laughs) Exactly. Because you don't know, you don't know one moment to a next, to the next, one creature to the next, what you're dealing with and how that thing is going to react to you or against you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so Bill, you mentioned the person who was hit with the large piece of equipment, right? Yeah. Well, it turns out that's Melania's godfather. Wow. Yeah, his name is Andrew Kamluck, or his name was Andrew Kamluck. And he was out there logging in 1931 when someone or something hit him over the head with a piece of log-moving equipment, and the blow killed him instantly. Was that what caused them to leave, or did they stick around? No, no, no. No, that was just one. She was born in 1934. Oh, okay. So this happened in 1931. So it's just this, like she said, this repeated set of incidents. Right. And if she was a little babe or a toddler, she would have nothing to do with maybe the inside story at that time of who got killed and what killed them. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe it's just that your godfather died, you know. Yeah, and it was before she was even born. Oh, okay, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Wow, freaking so, incredible. Uh, a lot, a lot of different events. I just brought that up because you mentioned that one, right? Yeah, I mean, when I first heard that, uh, I I was actually looking at some pictures of what's left of that community. There's still structures there that were overgrown with the woods and. Yep. And it just boggles the mind that everybody would just up and go, but not just get up and go. They left there uh, in a state of terror that, you know, I may be next or we may be next. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, basically, the whole village left at the same time. (coughs) And, you know, this is shocking. So it's definitely not a one time event. Right. To scare away the whole village, unless it was like an earthquake or something. That's not what we're talking about. But it is also interesting that this is a pretty rural place. And even today, getting back to Alaska of today, 
Like, you can't really count on calling 911 and getting help in Alaska. And it's no dig on folks out there. If you're, uh, you know, first respond, if you're a first responder in Alaska, I'm not taking a shot at you. I'm saying there's a few of you covering this huge place. It's not like, Bill, like your neighborhood. You call 911 and five minutes later, they're going to be there. Yeah. Right. You know, same here in my neighborhood. Right. It's like in, in Homer, Alaska or, you know, Port Chatham, Alaska, you call 911. I mean, you know, you might as well call the Air National Guard. Yeah. Right? Good luck. You know, I don't know when they're coming. And the other thing is, too, Kev, uh, I don't know how many people were there uh, at the the apex of of uh, of the fish cannery, but there had to be uh, plenty of firearms and ammunition around that place. Yeah, well, so as you as you mentioned that, here's another piece from the story. So uh, um, this this local sawmill owner at the time named Tom Larson, uh, he was cutting up wood at the sawmill for fish traps, right? Because it's a fishing village, mm-hmm. and he told of spotting uh, uh, an Antinook uh, out on the beach once. And he went back to his house immediately to get his gun, right? Because okay. he figured he'd throw some lead at it like a good uh, <laughs> sawmill guy. Yeah. And it's interesting, though. He specifically talks about the fact that he came back down to the beach with his gun. The big hairy man was still there. And he says, quote, the thing looked at him. And he said, for some reason, he still doesn't know why, he decided against firing a shot at it. Hmm. And we've kind of heard stories like that, too, before, Bill, right? Like if the thing takes the time to look at you, make contact with you, and of course, it's not coming at you to kill you, you know, but that this particular case, it's standing there. It's kind of tough to pull the trigger, you know, now, depending on who you are. Of when course. that happened to him, was that before the abandonment? It doesn't say. Okay. It doesn't say. I'm guessing it is, though. Yeah, because I, I wouldn't think... Uh, he would have spared any bullets uh, knowing what had happened at the fish cannery if he had knowledge of that. Yeah. I mean, I would have just kept chambering rounds and pulling the trigger until that thing <laughs> dropped or ran away. You know, one or the other. Or killed you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, Let's you be know. realistic. If it's 10 feet tall and weighs 1,000 pounds, yeah. you might not get off enough rounds. Right, which is why I always <laughs> say always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Exactly. Exactly. Holy smoke. Yeah. <laughs> pretty wow. Cool. Pretty cool. So then let's move way forward in time. And uh, also in this article, in August of 1973, a gentleman and two others were bow hunting for goats and black bear when a storm forced them to take shelter in a place called Dogfish Bay Lagoon. Right. Okay. Is this, and he is, says, we beached our skiff. We let the tide run her dry. After a dinner of broiled salmon, we turned into our tent. Sounds pretty good, actually, right? Yeah. Um, and he says, back in those days, the best tent I had was a dark green canvas job with a center pole and, you know, poor windows or floor. And I think we had one of those tents growing up, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, don't touch the sides. It'll let the water in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said he left the fire burning and cleaned the pots and pans so that they didn't attract bears during the night and turned in for sleep. He said the sky was clear, but the wind was howling through the old growth timber that lined the shore. And sometime around 2 a.m., his friend Dennis woke him up after hearing what sounded like footsteps outside the tent. Oh, boy. It wasn't a bear, Ed said. The walking, or rather creeping, continued until it half-circled the tent. And it definitely sounded as if it was something walking on two feet. That is creepy. Yeah. You know, and when people talk about... uh Tent encounters with Sasquatch, uh, many times the Sasquatch kind of like handles the tent or run, right. runs its hand down the side, uh, pushes in on it a little bit. You know what I mean? These types of yeah, things. Which is much different than a bear. 
Yeah, right? they're not going to just come up and like, like... I've been in a tent out in Yosemite when there was a bear outside the tent, and they don't run their hands down the corners yeah. of the tent or yeah. anything. Yeah, no, They were no. out there groaning, and then they started beating on the steel bear box outside the tent. Holy smoke. Yeah. And I'm sure, so, I'm sure oh, you had right. a large ball weapon with you, Kev. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> it might not be legal in Yosemite, so we'll say perhaps. <laughs> so also, I left this out. I was so excited talking about this. But when they had these encounters and when these folks disappeared and when their bodies turned up uh, from this very aggressive uh, Nantanuck or Hairy Man, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, whatever we want to call it. Um, they also found typically 18-inch long uh, human-like footprints. Wow. So, you know, very much, a lot of evidence here for uh, a creature attack. And then I'll end this. This is pretty exciting, okay? So this all happened... You know, she was born in 1934. She talked about leaving there when she was a kid. Um, we we talk about the evacuation of the town right after World War II in the late 1940s. But it turns out that um, the earlier records of the Portlock Cannery Management showed that the entire site had been vacated once before. And the records show that the cannery supervisor noted in 1905 that all of the native workers evacuated the area because of, quote-unquote, something in the forest. And they returned to work the following year at the cannery. So they split in 1905. They didn't come back until 1906 because something was terrorizing them from the forest. Yeah, and this other demon flying out of the cliff that looks like a woman <laughs> in a long dress. Holy smoke. But of course, Kev, you know, to the naysayer, everything's baloney, and so is that story. I mean, it Not- might have been a bear. It might have been a bear wearing a long dress. Yeah, picking up picking up a log splitting equipment and beating somebody over the head with it. <laughs> Could have been Yogi looking yeah. for a picnic basket. Hey, boo-boo. <laughs> yeah. Hey, boo-boo. Got any picnic basket? <laughs> so I don't know about you, but I'm glad we went back to Port Lock, Alaska. Man, that is freaking brutal. Creep fest. Wow. Man, you know, I mean, yeah, you just can't make that up. And this is no. all legitimate stuff. This is on the record. Uh, exactly. You know, this is one for the books, an epic encounter with the Nananook or Nanatook, whatever you said it was. Nana, Nantanook. Nantanook. I mean, obviously, in the paper, witnesses, people, abandonment, rehabilitation, abandonment again. You know. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Murders. And by the way, folks, I'll put the uh, I'll put the article from the Homer Tribune up on BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, of course, with this episode. Yeah, and of course, folks, you know, good luck to you going out there with your night vision goggles and a flashlight. <laughs> Holy smoke. I mean, watch out for the aggressive ones, right, Bill? Like, if you get the passive one, yeah. hey, nice. Right, don't you get sh- the aggressive one. Don't shoot. Ooh, God bless you. Yeah. Holy smoke. Well, I'm going to follow that up with a great account. Uh, this came to me from Eddie Pettigrew. It's an amazing story, uh, and uh, here it is in its full. Some of the good old boys and I had planned a weekend pheasant hunt. If we all showed up, there would be 12 of us there, a group perfectly suited to flush the soybean field that we had in mind for the day's hunt. It was about 10 a.m. on Saturday by the time all of these old-timers had arrived. I was the captain of the hunt, and my job was to call out when I wanted the two end men to begin the flush through the field. When everything works well, the line of hunters form a crescent shape, moving forward through the field, which gives the end men a shot at anything flying away. Most of the guys were shooting eight shot through a modified choke, including myself. 
This shot size and choke would put a good spread of pellets on any bird at about 20 to 25 yards. And since the pheasant is typically a low flyer, you won't have much more distance to shoot without endangering those who are flanking you on the drive. The rule is that we never turn more than the 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock position with our bodies or our guns. That day, we took about 13 birds, as I recall, which was a fairly good day's work for the crew. The next day, we were supposed to hit a nearby cornfield for more of the same. But the weather wasn't cooperating, the forecast being for rain showers all day long. I got on the phone with my buddy Mike and asked him if he was willing to give it a go, even though all of the other guys on the phone chain had bailed out. I told Mike that I really liked the look of the thicket next to the soybean field that we had hunted yesterday, and I suggested bringing the dog with us. Mike was usually game for anything, and today was no exception. I put my Irish setter in the truck and and met up with him at the field. It was a dreary day and drizzling when we got there. Now, just so you understand, there was thicket flanking this field on two sides, made up of a very deep and intertwined bramble. There was no way a man in his right mind would penetrate it or even attempt to do so, for you would be torn up before you knew what hit you. However, a dog could sneak around low, going in and out of the little tunnels that were formed by the growth, and flush out a bird. The morning didn't work out so well, even though this appeared to be choice ground. I don't know if it was the rain or the fact that the temperature had dropped 10 degrees, but the dog hadn't spooked a single bird. I thought that maybe he couldn't get to where they were hunkered down, since a bird won't jump until it's forced to do so. You almost have to step on them before they will take to the air. Having had no success in the morning, we took a little break with our plan being to hit the other side of the field later on once the rain had let up. So we took the dog and walked about a half mile over to the other other thicket. This thicket was even more dense than the other had been and I began to wonder if the dog could even work it at all. We began to move southward as the dog moved through this mess, and after about 20 minutes, the dog was so deep inside that we couldn't see or hear him, so I called him out. We pet him and gave him a snack before sending him back in. It must have been only a few minutes before we heard him yelp, and start to bark frantically. We thought that perhaps he had found a bobcat, because that was the only other time I had heard him sound like this. For for today's hunt, I had switched my ammo to a seven and a half shot, knowing that the seven and a half would give me a range of about 30 to 35 yards, which is better than the eight shot. The pellets are slightly larger and heavier, which also gives them more flight time to the target. The dog was barking frantically in the thicket, and he didn't respond to my call at all. He had obviously seen something that we could not. All of a sudden, a monstrous Bigfoot erupted from the thicket, and we both knew immediately what it was. I turned my over-under double towards it and hit it squarely with both loads at very close range. I'm not bragging, but I'm a very proficient shot, and I nailed this critter broadside with both barrels, and it didn't even flinch. Now, if a human had tried to run through this patch, it would be like trying to pull free from a pair of razor blade handcuffs. But this thing was a bowling ball through this crap like he was running through a wheat field. He took one quick glance at us and tore out. I don't know what they're made out of, but if you or I attempted to do what it did, you couldn't. It would take you 10 minutes to go 10 feet, 
and you'd probably be so cut up we'd have to call an ambulance. This critter was tearing through this mess at full giddy-up like a weed whacker on steroids. My partner quickly squeezed off two more rounds, but by that time, it wasn't worth the effort. If my two loads didn't take him down at 20 yards, nothing would. In about 30 seconds, it was gone. We tried to hustle down the thicket. Mike had chambered three more rounds, and I was trying to reload, but it was all to no avail. This booger was gone, and we were shocked that we couldn't even see him running away. Talk about excitement. We had gone from zero to hero and back in about 45 seconds. My heart was racing a mile a minute, and I know Mike felt the same way. We both kept saying to each other that we couldn't believe it, but believe it, we did. We had just witnessed and shot at a giant booger in the soybean field's thicket. This sucker had to have been nine feet tall easily. And I say this because no matter where you stood by the side of the sticket, it was a foot taller than me. And this critter was a head and shoulders above the top. He was kind of grayish white. And his fur was no longer than I thought it would be. Uh, And his fur was longer than I thought it would be. Even though I had heard all of the stories beforehand. The upper body looked like two 50-gallon drums welded together. Sometime after all of this, I couldn't stop thinking about the shotgun blast that had showed no effect on the creature. This thing's outer skin must be as thick as a board. I hit him squarely with close, close to 1,200 pellets at 50 to 60 feet and I didn't notice so much as a clump of fur flying off. There was nothing. It was like I had fired two blanks at it. I got to thinking that maybe its skin was like an elephant's, or maybe its hair follicles reach a couple of inches deep or something. A shotgun wouldn't take an elephant down, and it wouldn't take this booger down either. (coughs) Excuse me. When we got back to town... We told all the boys what we had seen, and they were beside themselves. You don't want to run into one of these bad boys with anything less than a 30-odd six, and that's the truth of the whole matter. What do you think of that, Kev? Cool. Now, where were they, Bill, in this thicket? Uh, mm, good question. They didn't say. I want okay. to th- you know, if my memory serves me correct, I'm thinking like Nebraska. Okay, because it's just super cool. Like, I mean, there's a lesson in this, Bill, like to me, all right? So yep. if you're going out pheasant hunting in some big thicket, right, not the big thicket of Texas, but in some big thicket, forget about the 8 or 7.5. <laughs> you want some three-and-a-half-inch shells with lead slugs. You know, you, you miss the pheasant, but... You'll get the booger. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like I, I wrote that down for myself. Like note to self: you go pheasant, pheasant hunting out there, put the slugs and the shotgun over under. You won't hit any pheasant, but when that booger comes out, you're a hero. Yeah, and if you do hit the pheasant, there won't be nothing left. <laughs> you won't be eating it for dinner. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, <laughs> this story brings to mind uh, something that I brought up before when we're talking, and that is about the thickness of the skin. Uh, one guy uh, was talking about how it must be like an elephant because you're not going to take an elephant down with a shotgun. And uh, hence, you know, the elephant gun, which is, you know, a large bore yep. rifle, you know. Yep. And the description of this thing uh, he talks about uh, the body looking like two fifty-gallon drums welded together. I mean, that's a serious. That's a pretty bo- cool description. Yeah, yeah, that's a serious body. But also, I, I think you know this is one of my best quotes of all the encounters that I've heard. I think it went something like 
tearing through this mess at full giddy-up like a weed whacker on steroids. The best! <laughs> the best, And then man. saying it looked like its body was two 50-gallon drums. Like, that. All right. Yeah, yeah. And think about that, Kev. You remember you, you telling me that the bears were going through this thorny undergrowth up in Alaska? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, like it was nothing? Yes. And, 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 you know, if you think about that, the way we walk through uh, thorn bushes or something, we're like watching everything we do and one scratches us and we gently lift the thing out of the way and try to make our way through. These yeah, things just go walking the through there like, like devil's, you know. Devil's Claw or something like that. Yeah. I just can't think of the name. No, I think that that sounds right to me, the Devil's yeah. Claw. Devil's Club, that's it. Devil's Club. Yeah. But maybe that lady floating out of the cliffs had a devil's club. Could be. Oh, my God. <laughs> what an incredible it, encounter, though, huh? It is awesome. Awesome. And it's, you know, it's one of those examples where you're going out pheasant hunting, you don't think you're going to run into Bigfoot. You're not out on a Bigfoot exhibit, you know, exhibition or something like that. You're, you're just out there pheasant hunting with your friends. Right. And daytime. Daytime. All of a sudden, this 10-foot hairy man comes out of the brush. Yeah, well, you know, if they could get in there, why not? What a great place why to not? hide out. Yeah, you know, awesome. Who's, who's going to come inside a, a, a gigantic wall of uh, thicket uh, to come look for you? You know, if you can get in there, you're safe. Yeah, maybe a bear, Bill. Yeah, maybe a bear <laughs> with a, a frilly under, undershorts on. <laughs> or a long dress that drags along the ground. Yeah, so that's it. Just incredible, man. That is awesome. Yep. Great yep. account. So what do we got in our listener mail tonight, brother? Yeah, we got some good listener mail. So uh, first one comes in from Rob in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeehaw! Down the road a piece for me. Same neighborhood, though. And the subject is, I am a believer, with an exclamation point. Uh-huh. And he says, I recently started listening to your show when a friend from work told me that y'all were doing an episode on Old Green Eyes. Love it. <laughs> and he says, that legend scared the crap out of me as a kid. And I got to say, it still gave me the creeps hearing you recite it. Kevin, he actually mentioned my name. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Rob. And so Rob mentions, he says he grew up in Alaska. And ever since I saw the northern lights, I've known this world is a lot bigger than me and that there is plenty of things in the woods that we know little to nothing about. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know, when you look at the creation... And consider the length and breadth and depth of what it is we live on and what's around us. I mean, to me, you got to be an ignoramus not to, uh, or to presume that these things or other things are out there. We know everything there is to know. Well, and it's interesting, like, you know, Rob brings up Northern Lights, seeing the Northern Lights. And it's like, you know, when I first saw the Northern Lights, if you described that to someone that you saw it, they wouldn't believe you. I mean, it's like the freakiest thing you've ever seen. Yeah. Now, I've never seen a Bigfoot, but when you see the Northern Lights, you're like, holy crap. Yeah. You know, like bigger, more vibrant crazier than any description or photograph you've ever seen. This yeah, but again, it's another thing where if somebody described it, you wouldn't believe it. It's it's absolutely otherworldly. Yeah, this veil of shimmering, oh, shifting man, lights. Like, moving around. Like when I first saw it, it reminded me, I don't know if you remember the first uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark movie when they opened up, remember the Nazis opened up the Ark of the Covenant. And this, like, green, like, spirit came out and was whipping around and killing everybody. That's what the Northern Lights looked like when I first saw it. Yeah, very bizarre and uh, <clears throat> very good description uh, going with that Raiders of the Lost Ark thing. Yeah. Because initially in that movie, of course, it was like, whoa, the exactly. eyes lit up. Oh, and then all of a sudden beautiful. it turned on them. Yeah, it was like, no, nah, not so beautiful. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. 
Watch out. And then, and then Rob mm-hmm. also writes, he said, Bill would be interested to know that I, too, believe that I encountered an angel back in the summer of 2012. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting. So he says, thank you all. That's plural for the both of us, Bill. Mm-hmm. So much for the excellent work <laughs> you do with the podcast. It's the perfect mixture of having fun with a fun topic while still taking the facts of it seriously. I'm still trying to catch up on all the episodes, but I'm enjoying them immensely. God bless, Rob. Wow. And pardon me, folks. I'm having a little bit of like a post-nasal drip here or something, scratching my throat uh, and kind of tickling me like a feather. But as uh, long as I'm it's playing. Not an evil woman spirit coming down from the cliffside. side. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm actually playing a little telephone tag uh, with. Uh, this fella today as we do this oh, podcast. Oh, cool. Very cool. Uh, I contacted him. I wanted to hear of what he believed was an angelic encounter. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure I'll get together with him over the next couple of days. Uh, but like I say, folks, if you've seen something, say something. Uh, we get a lot of email. I talk to a lot of people like uh, Rebecca on the phone uh, yesterday, the day before. Uh, but I am sure that the amount of people I speak to or hear from are nowhere near the amount of you who have something to say. So reach out, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, hit the contact link, and uh, tell us what's on your mind. All right, cool. All right, our next letter comes in from Brandon in Ottawa. Hey, hey. Mate. <laughs> and uh, he says, I'm from Ottawa, Canada, and have grown up largely in the rural area west of Ottawa, known as the Ottawa Valley. Hey, Brandon, I've been to the Ottawa Valley a bunch of times. It's beautiful up there as long as it's not wintertime. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's like cold. <laughs> Oh, he man. says, I have binge listened to you, your podcast, and I love it. I have about an hour drive to and from work each day and love listening to the podcast and, and subject matter on, the way, on my way to and from work. I have never seen a Bigfoot or had any experiences, but firmly believe in their existence and would welcome an opportunity to see one myself one day. Here's to hoping... Now, he's in Canada, so we know he's not packing the arsenal that he should. Yeah. So be careful there, all right, Brandon? Like, don't hope too hard unless you're carrying more gun. Yeah. Yeah. And he he wouldn't like to encounter one if he was at the fish cannery. (laughs) Not the likes of that one. So Brandon writes, I was wondering if either of you had followed Todd Standing's work or the Survivor Man Bigfoot series. Todd actually recently brought the issue before the British Columbia courts. He ultimately did not win his court case, but it was nevertheless a great attempt to have the species recognized. His video evidence, although controversial, is quite compelling. Check it out, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Keep up the great work. I look forward to listening to more of your show in the future. Brandon from Ottawa. Yeah, you know, Kev, uh, whenever I hear stuff like this, you know, fellas going into court trying to get the species recognized, he gets nowhere, uh, and yet this thing is depicted as a dangerous animal on an uh, on a armed forces survival map. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's pretty interesting. So I looked into this. This letter came in early in the week, and uh, I had time to look at it and look up Todd, and I remember seeing some of his videos. It's a couple of years ago that he brought this lawsuit, and really it was dismissed, um, as I recall, on the grounds that there was no precedence to kind of, like, there was no wrongdoing by the government. No one was hurt by them not, you know, calling in fish and game or whatever he claimed to go and do an investigation and a camp out looking for Bigfoot. You know, so it's reasonable. Courts are going to be kind of conservative by nature, right? Like, it made sense. Um, But the video that he posted, 
I mean, some of these, maybe we'll do an episode on it. Some of these close-ups of the face were like unlike anything I've seen before. I don't know if you've seen it, Bill. I have seen some of them, and uh, uh, as well as Todd, I love Les Straub. My heart sunk when he stopped doing uh, Survivor Man Bigfoot. Uh, I thought that was some of the greatest stuff I had ever seen legitimately. Uh, And I was just like, wow. And I wish, hey, guys, anybody listening, uh, if you know where I could get DVDs of uh, Les's shows, would you reach out to me and let me know? I did a little snooping around. I couldn't find anything. I think there's some episodes on YouTube, but I wanted some hardcore material that I could watch at my leisure and go back through some of the investigations that he did. Mm. Uh, Les, if you're out there, love you, bro, and I wish you'd get back in the game. Uh, I understand he's playing some music now. He's a musician, and he's he's digging on that vibe now. But uh, what an incredible uh, uh, grouping of shows he had did. I think Todd Standing was in one show with him. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So, well, uh, Kev, maybe we could look stuff. into some of Todd's uh, stuff one day. And uh... yeah, yeah, like I looked into it after I saw this letter. You know, not in detail, but uh, it's pretty interesting. And the video, some of the video he captured is like stunning. Like these close-ups of the face that are kind of honestly, it reminded me of like uh, the old Planet of the Apes movies. You know? Yeah, I that mean, uh, you the... can see the eyes, the nose, the mouth, clear as day. Yeah. Yeah, Super just cool. incredible. I mean, just, uh, you know, and these creatures are so different looking. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like humanity, Kev. You know, when you walk down the street in Manhattan. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you just do facial recognition of all the different people around you. It's amazing. Just human beings, how different we look. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. All right. We are going to Henrique from Michigan. He says, I really enjoy your show, having first heard you interviewed on the forest floor. Wow. Yeah. So, so I, there you go. little yeah. shout out. Yeah, and I was giving a heads up to uh, Emily at the beginning of the show. Yep. So Henry Enrique heard you there, and he says, it's incredible to me just how many encounters there have been with this creature. One can only imagine how many have actually occurred over the past hundreds of years. And we've touched on some of them, like they're they're well documented. This is me talking, not Henrique. Right. And he says, keep up the great work, Henrique. Wow. Well, I mean, look at the one you were just talking about today, Kev. That's, that's over 100 years old. And I mean, it's I, you know, I've said it before, Bill. I love the old stuff. I love finding these old newspaper clippings online and like reading the from the print of the actual newspaper, you know, from the, yeah. you know, the scan of the actual newspaper. And you think of like how much compared to today, how much they had to go through to get that printed, you know, back then. Like there was it wasn't a one off somebody posting on YouTube no. like, you know, it went through some scrutiny, some interviews, some face to face, et cetera, to make that into the paper. Yeah, and setting all the type by hand in some oh, yeah. archaic press. Yeah, no doubt you know, about it. Popping them off one sheet at a time. Yeah. Rolling the ink out on the typeface. Just incredible. And talk about old time. How about the last podcast we did, the Nahani? Exactly. Wow. And we're always going back in time. Yeah, well, when we can. And by the way, speaking of going back in time, Kev, keep an eye on your mailbox. I just sent something interesting out to you today. <laughs> all so, right. Uh, I sent it media rate, though, so that'll probably take six months. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, that's our last email this week. Uh, thank you for everyone for writing in and, of course, listening. And thank you very, very much for all those five-star reviews. And if you haven't already left us a five-star review, please do so now, right now, right now, from your favorite podcast player. And if you have already, hey, why not leave us another one? 
you know. And it's really important that you keep those five-star reviews coming because it brings more listeners to the podcast. That's our main way of getting new listeners is the five-star reviews. And as we get more listeners, we can continuously increase the quality of the podcast. So thank you so very much. Wow. And keep in mind, folks, if you find yourself wandering around in the woods somewhere around our great country, remember this. Always carry more guns than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. Thank <laughs> you.